This is the Mentor Shift Podcast, coming out every second Thursday with Mickey Fahair. Welcome to Mentorship, man. This is Mickey Fair, your host. Today's show is brought to you by Mindset Maps International. Mindset Maps International has developed based on 20 years of research an amazing tool called the Mindset Map Tool. If you go to www.mindset-maps.com, you can also take the Success Mindset Maps inventory, which allows you to map out your current mindset in relationship to a specific business goal or life goal that you have right now in focus and compares it to that of very successful purpose-driven entrepreneurs such as Anita Roddick who founded Body Shop or you know Steve Jobs or Mohammed Yunus who was an amazing entrepreneur is an amazing entrepreneur in India and started uh, the microcredit uh, business there so it's a great opportunity um, because we take you know mindset for granted we think that if we have a goal we have the right mindset for it but many times don't we realize wow you know if only my my mindset would have been a little different i would have done it so i encourage you to try the mindset maps tools um, and it's again at www mindset-maps.com also if you like our show if you like what we're doing please give us a good rating give us a review and also subscribe on your uh, favorite podcast platform to mentorship so that you can always hear firsthand very quickly you don't have to do anything it will be just automatically downloaded to your uh, thingy where you're listening to us from so welcome to today's show and today's show is actually i have aria marvazi here and he was born and raised in los angeles california and he's got a ba in psychology and a master's degree in organizational behavior uh, from nyu He's been 12 years into his non-profit uh, career, and he currently serves as the managing director of JQ International, an LGBTQ plus and Jewish organization focused on education, outreach, and support in service of inclusion and equality for all. In 2017, Arya launched the JQ Persian Pride Fellowship and um, his dedication to the Jewish and LGBTQ plus community earned him a spot on the LA Jewish Journal's 30 on the 30 list, also Iron Wire's 50 Iranian Americans you should know, and most recently the 2019 J-Pro Young Professional Award. So please join me in welcoming Arya Marvazi. Hey Arya. So good to have you. And uh, before we actually dive into your journey and story, I wanted to share a little bit about my own, because I think we have uh, something in common in that, you know, our history is beautiful. At the same time, also, you know, we went through multiple challenges. And so I wanted to share a little bit about mine. 
you know, when people ask me, I talk a lot about modern man and purpose and that, that, you know, the modern man is purpose driven. So they always ask me, Mickey, what is your purpose? Mm. And I say to that, you know, my purpose is to open minds and wings of people so they can change their personal history. And, you know, what that means to me is that um, I grew up in a, in a semi-Jewish family, you know, like kind of a Christian uh, Jewish background. And the Jewish heritage is is a heavy heritage. I mean, it's beautiful, but it it also has some really awful things from the 20th century and the Holocaust. And for me, it was a big mission in life to be able to take away all the bad effects of the Holocaust on my family. I mean, I can't change that, but I can change it through my, my own life. So that, that was quite a journey for me. So I'm, I'm excited to learn about your journey. Thank you for inviting me to share it. I'm looking forward as well. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, um, which interestingly is the largest population of Iranian Jews in the world. And I was born to refugees of the Islamic Revolution. My parents were each born and raised in Tehran and left um, after the revolution in 82. And um, growing up in Los Angeles, it's interesting because I I grew up around so many people like myself that I thought Persian Jews were everywhere. Of course, it only took five miles outside of LA for people to be like, how can you be both Iranian and Jewish? Those two things don't mix. Um, But yeah, I, I, um, I have lived a life of communal service. My degrees are in psychology uh, and then a master's degree in organizational behavior, but I've always, well, mostly been in the nonprofit sector and actually in the nonprofit Jewish communal sector, um, which in the past four years has brought me to the organization JQ International. I didn't actually found the organization. Um, another individual, Asher Gellis, did, but I came in about five years ago and um, was the sort of um, second executive leader of the organization that's been able to really improve and shift and build upon a decade's worth of work at the time that I joined. So we're now 15 years into our work, all of which is focused on the healthy fusion of Jewish and queer life. Um, Often we find that individuals who either feel a sense of spirituality or religiosity and that are also identifying as LGBTQ feel split at the root that there is, you know, parts of them that are not allowed into their religious spaces. And also that sometimes the queer community is resistant to religiosity or spirituality for having been shunned by it. So our work is all about helping individuals of, of all ages and backgrounds. Really, we are a Jewish organization, but we serve everyone. Um, to find that sort of healthy fusion between their spirituality and their and their queer identity, right? Oh, that's that's really wonderful. And uh, you know, like the world needs you. <laughs> um, what I wanted to ask you is, um, I like to think about um, human life as kind of a hero's journey, and you know, there's there's kind of a calling, and there's a threshold that you have to cross. Mm-hmm. So I. I would like to hear a little bit about, you know, how did the calling come about for you as a person and how did you cross the threshold? Yeah, I, I actually, recently, funny you should ask, I recently started uh, learning about the hero's journey ah, okay. and was applying it to a different part of my life, which is hoping to build my own coaching practice of some sort. Um, but as it relates to the world of activism, I 
my journey began in a reality where my future was impossible. So in that, by that I mean, I looked at my life uh, in my early childhood, I had my teens, even early adulthood, and never found a person that reflected what my future might look like. By that I mean, to be even more clear, I was a Persian Jewish gay man, deeply, deeply in the closet, in a fairly homophobic uh, society. And I saw no one that was out of the closet and well-adjusted and still deeply embedded within their uh, family and their community. For that matter, the examples, the minimal examples I had of LGBTQ people in Iranian life and in my own community were individuals who either chose to depart from the community or you know, found that they were, it was so inhospitable that they weren't going to stay as deeply connected. So I, um, I would say that I always held the dream of wanting to be an LGBTQ activist, in particular because by the time I came out of the closet, and it was quite boldly in, in a Facebook video that just you know, said it to the world, um, I had already done eight years of Jewish communal service and organizing and education that is to say, one of my callings in life is, um, is serving others and uplifting others and empowering others. So I had done that for eight years and given my reputation was a communal leader, by the time I was coming out of the closet, mm-hmm. I had the sense, you know, I knew that I would get some negative feedback as well. That, that you know, was going to happen in a world where people weren't boldly saying, I'm here, I'm queer, I'm proud accept me and now let's move forward on this conversation. Um, but when I, when I put the video up, by and large, there was far more support than there was resistance. And I even think that, if I'm thinking back now, it's almost five years ago, four years ago, going on five years ago, um, I feel like there was, the, that the community had this like sigh of relief that somebody ripped the band-aid on this conversation somebody was like willing to put themselves out there so once that video came out it lent me to finding jq and to joining this organization and movement and now i consider myself to be the most aligned i've ever been in my life you know both taking every one of my personal experiences and passions and motivations just from a human level and applying that to a professional sector where I can, again, serve and empower and uplift others in their own journeys. And, and that's where I'm at today. I mean, that really resonates. I mean, it, it reminds me of the quote from, they're saying this, it was probably Aristotle who said that. And he mm-hmm. said, you know, like, you have your gift, um, your calling, and then you have the needs of the world. And when they intersect, there is your vocation. So yeah, that sounds like a beautiful example of, of a calling and, 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 and the greater need in the world. Um, how did your family take, you know, when you came out and, and sort of the Persian community around you? Yeah. How, how was that part? So it's interesting because that, that's a, a, a question that, that spans the arc of seven years. The first person I came out to was interestingly a Persian Jewish gay man that, mm in whom I saw myself reflected and finally felt safe enough to break the seal and of the closet. And it was because he knew exactly what I was going through from a cultural, communal, you know, peer level. 
Um, but it took seven years from coming out to that first individual, a friend of mine in, in college, Ryan, to coming out to my parents. And over the arc of that seven years, I did this, this game of hide and seek, um, maybe even cat and mouse, where I came out to some but not to others. You know, I played this um, game of who might, who might receive it um, better than others so I could at least start there. Uh, with my own family, with my household, it's interesting because as soon as I told my siblings, each of them dove in head first to support. Um, and, and even with my parents, if I'm being honest, one parent knew before another. Um, and that was my father who knew before my mother. Um, but he, you know, he knew and was withholding that information only to get my mother to a place where she could hear it and accept it and process it and move forward with me. So eventually when there was this day that I was coming out to her, um, right. it, was, it was incredibly sort of tense and uh, finally saying the words were very difficult. I'm like feeling that rise of emotions now. Um, but when she heard that I was in need, when it, when it registered for her that I'm in need, and she is the most soulful, incredible woman, I always say actually that I feel like we had one soul that was split into two bodies, her and I. Um, she dove in also to, to be supportive and to help um, and, and both to take care of me. But then eventually over the arc of just four years, Mickey, and this is pretty impressive, a woman who did go from harboring negative sentiments to LGBTQ people has today become a literal ally activist, a mother that other mothers call for support, and a woman who just in March of this year, um, I invited her to say a few words at a panel about Persian life, given her son is one of the foremost leaders in the community, and she said yes, and I never guided her. I didn't give her a time limit. I didn't give her any pointers. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of eager on, you know, on waiting to see what she might say or do, she gave an eight-minute impassioned tearjerker speech about her own journey and about the, the impetus for all of us to support and, and secure and assure the people that we love in our lives that are LGBTQ and that it's an imperative for anyone, meaning a mother, a father, a grandparent, aunt, uncle. So all of that to say, it was tense before. You know, we went through our struggles, but we've moved to a much more... Um, united front on this all of us can speak to our reasons why we support lgbtq equality with me as an activist and my family as allies no but i i really love to hear that and uh, the transformation is beautiful and also i think you know it shouldn't have to take seven years like for us as a society you know just like what the hell like why why does it take somebody seven years to be express to be able to express himself herself, whatever, you know, however he or she defines uh, her way. And that, that shouldn't have to take seven years. So as you said something, you know, like a few minutes ago, which really kind of struck me when you said, you know, I saw, I didn't see my future in anybody. So, you know, that th th that must be, or that must have been very hard. Did you eventually have a mentor that supported you on, on the journey to kind of find yourself and be yourself? Or did you feel like, you know, you had to find it on your own? That's a, that's a really powerful question I haven't been asked before. And it forces me to reflect in real time about um, 
who are my mentors in my life? Whoever brought me to the place of feeling confident enough to want to then become a activist to a world where people harbored such negative feelings and sentiments about the identity I wanted to activate. Um, and the truth is, no, I don't believe that I had LGBTQ mentors. I'm terribly sorry if I'm forgetting you and you're listening, LGBT mentor, that was in my life. <laughs> um, but most of my prime nurturers, educators, mentors, coaches are really brilliant, empowered women. And um, most of those women fall into the category of heterosexual. Um, so it wasn't queer mentors in my own personal life. Interestingly, as I came out and as, as many of us that um, began to come out in around the same time frame began to unite and build our own community, there was an incredible collective of Iranian Jewish men um, that are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s that began their own movement well before my Facebook video ever came out and, you know, had been gathering people and even had a, a really powerful LA Times article and essentially, you know, had done some of the organizing work before I was ever on the scene and getting to connect with them and getting to build with them and be in community with them was one of the first times that I saw this sort of intergenerational queer community that I never had. So they would, people like Shervin and Joseph and <laughs> this, this great collective of humans that inspired the first wave of activism in the Persian community and um, Persian community more broadly, and in some cases, the Persian Jewish community. Um, love it. Love it. I, you know, just one thought that I want to amplify from this is that, you know, when I asked you the question, I, I, I didn't quite know how, how am I, I asking it? Is it, you know, a queer mentor or just a mentor in general? And it, it was lovely to hear that you're saying, look, you know, for, for somebody to be a good mentor, they don't have to be exactly like you. All they have to do is they have to have compassion. They have to have empathy. They have to see you. They have to love you. And when they do that, you know, even if you're different, you can grow, you can, you can find yourself. So that's a, I think it's a beautiful, important point about mentorship. This is the name of this podcast. So, you know, I just want to ask everybody who's listening right now, think about your life and think about the people who made a difference for you, who saw you, and, and just be grateful for a moment. And maybe be able to give that back to, you know, to, to other people, to our kids, to our partners, to our family. Yeah. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Hmm. So, um, you know, one of the things that we talked a little bit about is, you know, the difference between tolerance acceptance and true inclusion and it's interesting because i grew up in a very liberal um sort of in a in a, in a good way not not in a box way boxed in way right. but, you know uh our family was really accepting and empathetic and and my mother talked a lot about tolerance for otherness mm -hmm. and you know at, at that time it, it was a really positive term because it meant can I be, can I put myself in your shoes if we are different? Can I even begin to see the world from multiple perspectives? Can I deal with the fact that we are all different? And it, it really stems from this idea that we are fundamentally different, not even as a class of, you know, like, am I LGBTQ or am I uh, cisgender or am I this or am I that heterosexual? Just as humans, we are fundamentally different. But now we talk about, you know, 
it's not enough to tolerate and accept it, it because it's different from true inclusion. Can you say a little bit about what that means? Yeah, we have in our midst, and and this his name is Joel Kushner. He's a scholar and a professor, and um, did a, a great amount of work in the field of gender and sexuality, in particular in the Jewish community. And he built this beautiful uh, inclusion spectrum that helps people to understand when that when this question comes up and people think, oh, oh, I love I love queer people. I think they're great. I have no qualms about them having an equal life and living fully. And, and that feels like to them, like full inclusion and embrace. Um, whereas for some people, well, I'll mark the difference this way. Tolerance as we see it is, is often actually now, and I know it was a strong word in the 90s, but today when someone says, I will tolerate you, as in whatever, is, whatever your truth is and your identity is, I will tolerate you. Often we see that paired with a condition of silence, you know, meaning it's fine, but please stay quiet or it's fine, but please remain subdued. Don't change your behavior or your identity or your dress or your words or your, it's almost this sense of, I will tolerate you as you are. It's almost as though I am giving the power to you because I have it and I want to tolerate you and give you some of your power. Um, but it's, it also in many cases communicates that I'm not actually going to acknowledge if there is negative treatment about LGBTQ people, I'm not going to you know, take a more firm stand on this subject. It's more like I, I, I tolerate, but you know, between you and I, and most often I'm under the condition of silence. Acceptance, which moves a notch up, is, you know, is, is fine that it, it is also both, it, they may or may not welcome LGBTQ people in non-LGBTQ settings, meaning you can have an accepting religious leader who says, I accept you for your identity and please continue coming to church, but we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to, you know, in, es in essence, welcome that. We may even recognize, you know, because we accept LGBTQ people in our church, that if somebody says a slur against an LGBTQ person, we will say, that's not allowed. Um, but we're not making an inclusion statement for our church to say, you know, you are welcome here, your identities are affirmed and protected. And that's where we talk about inclusion and even a notch above inclusion, which is embrace. It's where individuals not only welcome the sort of presence and participation of LGBTQ people, but they support actively the increased awareness of those people. They speak up against any injustices that are brought upon LGBTQ people. They really make it a, a principle or a value if it's an individual in their life, if it's a system or organization in their sort of, you know, um, organizational standards or organizational culture that we welcome and we protect and we affirm and we actively seek to, you know, on any given day, assure that an LGBTQ person feels as fully welcome here as they would anywhere else. And I'd say that the last notch on that inclusion spectrum, was act, which is actually embracing, is where an individual recognizes LGBTQ people have a unique contribution to make in any spaces where they are found. That is to say, an LGBTQ person telling their story is uniquely powerful because of that person's LGBTQ identity and what that person may have gone through. And so we want to 
actively seek to value the presence of LGBTQ people. We want to embrace them and admire and nurture the stories in their lives and advocate for action, you know, in, in service of their equality. And that's that sort of spectrum. The, of the whole spectrum. Yeah, front, and by the way, before tolerance is actually hostility. So I just want to name that, you know, tolerance is that first notch above hostility. Hostility is I don't accept you. You don't belong, not whatsoever. And tolerance is just one notch up. I do, but just between you and I, you know, and keep quiet. That, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great way of explaining it. And I think it, it also helps, you know, some of our listeners may be working for companies or o they own a company. I think this question of, you know, what are we doing in our businesses and organizations? Um, are we tolerating it? Right. Are we accepting it? Are we, you know, one, one step ahead and, and, and do we have true inclusion in our company or do we embrace it as well? And yeah, you gave me something to think about the, yeah, with the embrace piece because yes, it's, it's even one notch up. Right. Now, uh, here, here's a question. And uh, I, I was in a men's group and um, this week and, you know, somebody said that, you know, they have a friend, an African-American friend and And the guy said, you know, we are tired. We are tired of educating you. Mm -hmm. And so, so that we, we had this whole conversation where, you know, he was sharing that the African-American friend said, look, you know, we're tired of explaining why, how we are different. We are tired of explaining what it is for us. And so, you know, I guess my question is, if I look at, you know, my life, Should I be asking questions from African-American friends, from LGBTQ friends? Should I be, because my natural inclination is I want to know more about it. And, but this guy was saying, you know, you could just go on the internet. You could just read books, educate yourself, and then come to me when you educated yourself. Right. So how does it feel if, You know, someone like, or, or what is your advice uh, to, to, to people who are listening? Should we go off and, and learn first and then ask questions? Or, or is it good, does it feel good when, when people ask questions? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question and I'm, I'm grappling with it myself. You know, in some ways, embarrassed to admit that my own personal journey to now combat anti-racism, I mean, well, to uplift anti-racism and to combat structural racism has begun in the past few weeks as a more concerted effort. Um, I'll answer from the angle of being an LGBTQ activist on the LGBTQ story, and then maybe just comment on my own thoughts about the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I, I chose my role and I began to think about my career path as a full-time LGBTQ activist, recognizing that that was entirely dependent on storytelling and on deep vulnerability at every moment that I could possibly afford it. And so I chose that even when I, now that I think about it in terms of the context of this question, I chose that from a position of major privilege. And that is to say, by the time I was putting a video on Facebook and coming out of the closet and then getting, you know, communications by every form that you might imagine from individuals seeking support or wanting to learn more, I had a family that loved me. I had an infrastructure and a, and a secure reality to be existing in that allowed me to feel safe enough 
to make that very risky and vulnerable move. And I, I remember actually my mother naming for me, like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure that you want to become that person that everyone is going to then want to either attack because they disagree with what you're doing or to just like basically be in constant communication and contact with you to be any sort of expert on this subject. And I don't consider myself an expert, but you know, to be that poster child, in other words. And my answer was yes, absolutely. That I've been eagerly anticipating this day because I now have my, what I would consider my equality at minimum with my family and friends in life. And now I want to fight for that equality for others. Mm-hmm. Um, the ways in which I, and so that is to say, if somebody came to me and said, Aria, what's your story? Or can you teach me or can we engage? The answer is yes, absolutely. We'd love to, certainly from an organizational perspective for the business people on this, you know, listening in, I hope you know that training on this subject should cost money and you should be paying for it. You don't want to ask a friend for the favor of teaching your team how to be LGBTQ inclusive because that's not someone's job. And, and those hours are valuable right. and meaningful. Right. And that, that's actually one of our number one outputs as an organization is our inclusion trainings. And I, I need to name that as a not black person reflecting on the feelings and thoughts of an individual communicating, you know, I'm tired. You haven't gotten it for so many years. Like, I, I don't want to be the person to hold your hand through racial justice and equality I so hear it and it so resonates and I so empathize with that feeling in particular because I'm just reflecting for myself here as an individual opinion. When Eric Garner was choked to death on film for selling counterfeit cigarettes or whatever it was, in my mind, I thought, oh my God, it's been filmed and now the world is going to change because we just watched police murder a man. And then there were 50 plus examples of that time after time after time. And I can only imagine I'm feeling the rise in myself and I'm not black. What a black person is feeling about this moment that finally the world woke up because someone was suffocated to death in nine minutes on camera. And now we're sort of leaning in to say, we get it. We have to lean in. We're going to do this. How do we do this? Help me. And they're kind of like, you've got to do a lot of learning And there's a lot of stories online and there's a lot of content that you might absorb before coming to me to say, the burden of me being your ally is still on you as an oppressed person. So I really, I hear that loud and clear and I invite people to consider, and I'm doing it myself, in terms of all of the podcasts I'm listening to and books I'm reading and dialogue groups that I'm in, movements I'm starting um, in service of racial justice without unless I am paying a black person for their time, energy, voice, stories, and training, you know, um, not to put any pressure or onus on them to, to guide us through this. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. And um, it's, it's totally true that, again, if I put myself in the shoes of, you know, the other side, you know, there, there's a sense of, you know, how long it's going to go on. Yeah. I also believe you know, that the conversation is really key. So, you know, asking questions and, and, and opening up, like, you know, one of, one of, in one of my interviews with um, an African-American pastor, he said, you know, I'm going to be doing something with you, which I don't often do. I'm going to talk to a white man, <laughs> about, like, and that's right. it. And, right. and he's a Harvard-educated person, but, but he still says, 
you know, that, that's that's not something that he like he would normally do to have a conversation about racism with a white person. You know, yeah. that doesn't happen. Right. I think, you know, we also kind of bear the responsibility um, to start the conversation so, sort of on the white side. Um, right. One, one other question that I have for you is, you know, the whole topic of what, what I would call, you know, political correctness. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant in, in the United States, so I come from Europe. And the, the level of PC that exists here, you know, is, is nothing like that in Europe. Uh, you know, we talk about microaggression here. What, what, what do you even mean? Like, you know, that, that would be so normal in Europe all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, when we moved, you know, it kind of hit me, you know, what a great thing, you know, we are mindful of what we are saying here. And, you know, my, my own kids would correct me sometimes like, dad, you know, like, be careful with what you're saying. And that, that, that was a good journey. And then, you know, as I kind of immersed myself in, in society, I'm beginning to see an other side of uh, PC. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, I'm not going to ask you anything because I don't know how you're going to react. Is that okay for me to even ask what is the LGBTQ experience like? Right. Uh, can I ask you this? Can I ask you that? No. So I'm going to avoid carefully these kinds of subjects. And so we end up not connecting, not knowing each other. So how do you think about this topic? It's a great one. I, you know, I don't have a a prescription. Rather, I can only share my personal experience, both from the element of an activist for the LGBTQ sector, which is my story and my identity, and then considering where I step into feminism or racial justice or other movements and want to be the empathic, thoughtful, you know, ally to others. I think people have lost the, or lost a sense about the value of deep empathy and intention. We don't, you know, when someone comes to another person and says, I don't know very much about this subject, but I really want to learn about it. Insert question. You have opened up a, you know, a space for another person to say, thank you, one, for just beginning with the vulnerability that allows me to lean in. Um, But you don't need to fear the mistake because you're opening with, this is where I'm at in this moment. And that's so okay. You know, we don't, I I, I agree with you that from one angle, the world of political correctness, and certainly those people who now use that as a shield to essentially say, well, I'm not even going to lean in because the whole liberal and progressive universe is just so trigger happy to call someone racist or homophobic or misogynistic that I don't, I don't even want to lean into that space. I find that to be a fraudulent <laughs> mindset because if anything, if a person with deep intention and true empathy and really humility steps into any, any stage of learning and says, I don't know much, but I have the intention to learn would you lean in with me? I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone say, the answer is no, I don't want, you know. Um, and, and with the LGBTQ space, that's interesting. I'll just give you one example in this world, which is around gender pronouns. You know, today we're able to say, my name is Arya Marvazi, my pronouns are he and him. That's the way that I identify in terms of pronouns. And you invite another person to share their own. Say, for example, if you engage with someone whose gender identity or gender expression to you seems confusing or you don't, you know, you can't pin it. So you want to be 
thoughtful. It's almost like the onus is on you to introduce yourself with pronouns and, and you will within, within queer community, we find that to be a, such a invitation to um, invitation to openness because we're like, wow, how nice. And mine are blank, you know, he, him, she, hers, they, theirs. Um, so I, I just, I, I, I want to emphasize, you know, mm-hmm. we don't have to have even the path towards knowledge that we think that we have to have in place before diving in with a friend or even a stranger. Rather, I think we need to cultivate the emotional intelligence and the empathy to be able to name to a person, this is where I'm at, this -hmm. is where I'd like to be going, and this is why. Um, The why really being the fundamental core of learning, of course. You know, I I really love that. And and I think it's very important for for our listeners to, to think about this. It, it happens to me when I'm coaching people very, very often is that, you know, they, they, they're going to tell me, well, I offended somebody and okay. I, I tell them, okay, so, so share the story. And almost always what comes through is that there was no stated intention. There was no framing of the conversation. The person just started asking questions in a certain kind of way. And the other side was like, woo, what are these questions? You know, where are you coming from? And, you know, it's such a simple recipe, recipe, right? Like, come on, just state why, you know, can I ask you a few questions? I know so little about this subject. I'd love to learn. And then when they, and feel it when you say it, like that's that's the other part. So say, state it and feel it. And And you nailed it actually, Mickey, this piece around, can I ask you? Because I, I guess I just, you know, I'm realizing what I just said, which is, you can go to anyone and with the right intentions, you um, are entitled to their life story or their experiences. And that's also not true. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you'd have to have either a level of proximity to or like mutual understanding with the person to ask them about their journey as a queer person, a black person, a woman, a person with differing abilities. We don't, you know, bump it. We're at a bar and we meet someone and we're kind of like, hi, hey, how are you? How's it going? Like small talk, small talk, small talk, small talk until eventually you get to some level of vulnerability. It's sometimes I think people feel entitled to information because someone holds a specific position or role. So even for myself as an LGBTQ activist, I would find it more thoughtful if someone said, frankly, I'm an open book, so you can ask me anything anyway, but I'm just naming it for the, for the people listening. You don't want to dive in with like, you're an activist. What was the hardest part about coming out? You know, that's, that's really, you're diving like straight to the core of a person and a person is still a person, however much they've given their life to a form of activism and, and should be dealt with, I think, again, with empathy and with thoughtfulness. So I just, I I like what you said about, you know, is it okay for me to ask you a few questions about said things because I want to learn. And, yeah, and, rather and I love your point of adding build rapport first, right? Like let's have some connection before I even ask, can I ask, right? Because, right. because it's going to be a different answer and, and it's, it's going to feel uh, very different. All right. So hopefully th- this is something that, you know, is tangible and kind of like a mini tool set for, for people who are listening here. Um, I wanted to also ask you uh, about masculinity and and modern masculinity because that's what we're talking about here 
And, you know, we all have different definitions of what, what that means. So I'd be curious to learn a little bit about how you define, when, when you hear those terms, modern masculinity, what, what comes to your mind? Uh, very many, many things, <laughs> interestingly. <laughs> and when I think about modern masculinity, I almost think that to, to better define it from my perspective is to actually just zoom out and talk about modern gender as in like, let's already start talking about gender as a collective rather than masculinity versus femininity because it locks us back into the binary of masculine is and feminine is. We know, of course, you know, like, you, like you've stated in your, in your work, in your world, this, the neurobiological differences between male and female as a biological sex. But of course, you know, gender norms and the expression of gender and the experience of gender um, is quite culturally um, rooted. That is to say that it is not scientific in nature. And I think when we talk about modern gender to start, we're talking about individuals who have began to process their gender outside of whatever it is that they passively assumed or understood to be true about gender from their society. So it's interesting when I say that, I think about in the LGBTQ community, by virtue of being different, um, and it can be different based on sexual orientation or gender identity, or both, mm -hmm. meaning a transgender person is also either heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual. So like sometimes we, we just group it all together, but the LGBTQ community is, is really speaking to two different experiences that intersect the sexual orientation and romantic orientation, and then the other of gender identity and experience and expression. Um, so for our community, I think because of our differentness, we question so much about our lives and our character and how we behave in the world and how we are experienced in the world. And I can tell you as a gay man, um, growing up in a very paternalistic uh, society that masculinity in that world was in some ways the definition of masculine equals powerful. A masculine equals strong, masculine equals um, in control. Right. And in those ways, I think it directly feeds into the definition of toxic masculinity, which is used, which is embodied in essence to uphold power to oppress, to, you know, to, to feel um, better than, or in some way sort of feel the superiority of maleness or to, um, or to utilize the privileges of maleness, given we're, we're living in a society that didn't always see women as equal. And that applies to the globe, not just America. Um, and so, when I think about modern gender, when I think about modern masculinity, I think about individuals that are taking the time and truly exploring the conversation about gender. If it's for men that consider themselves masculine, then strictly masculinity, but parsing out sort of what parts of their gender identity, meaning how they feel on the inside and what parts of their gender expression, meaning how their gender then manifests on their body or in terms of their expressions, um, how much of that is what they fundamentally agree with and believe to be real and true for them as a person, as an individual, as a unique soul, and how much of it is mm -hmm. just a matter of what they have 
passively assumed, accepted, and, and then just sort of rolled with the punches of, well, this is what it means because this is always what it's meant. This is just the way my culture and society works. I would venture to guess on this subject, especially, you know, speaking of modernity, if we think about 20 to 40 years from now, that the expression of gender and the acceptance that a human being, not only obviously, and this is now scientific as well, but has elements of male and female within themselves, characteristics and traits and even hormones and uh, sort of uh, a biological experience, I mean to say, of male and femaleness that is not um, definitively one or the other for the human experience. That is to say, we all have testosterone and estrogen and different levels of hormones in our lives that would be associated with each biological sex um, that I hope that in 20 to 40 years, and I venture to guess that in 20 to 40 years, we will move to, we will move to basically do away with gender norms that lock a person in to a gender expression that is directly connected to their biological sex. And that means for me, if a man decided to wear a pair of heels somewhere because that man felt like wearing a pair of heels, that a, per a person wouldn't have to bat an eye about this person's decision to put on this shape with this height of you know, heel on the back of it, which doesn't mean anything, but has come to mean so much in society's definition of gender. Um, that was long-winded, and I don't know if I was very clear, so please feel free to dive in with me to clarify. No, I, I, I hear you. I mean... The way I, I kind of think about it, and I'm going to replay what I heard from you, is, you know, I, I love this kind of uh, musical instrument, like, you know, we are a piano or we are a keyboard, and, and we have all these tones and experiences and energies that are available to us, you know, like tenderness and softness and fierceness and decisiveness, and they are not, like, I never understood this question, which um gender is superior like when we start talking about things like you know there are facts for right. you know how much women make and 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 men make and and you know so so th those are kinds of like facts but we don't have to go to trying to justify that you know one side is superior to the other i think we have to go back to this keyboard and say how do we be become more full expressions of who we want to be. So if I'm a man, what does that mean to me? What kind of man I want to be? And what elements of traditionally considered female energies and, and male energies will I want to bring in? And, um, you know, I, I, I must say that for, for me, the idea, like I, I didn't understand the part about the high heels. Like, would, would you say that that would be uh, a queer person have no worries whatsoever to be able to put on high heels or do you do you mean that high heels no longer mean anything in the sense that you know like anybody even if you're you're you know let's say you're you're a male cisgender man you you will put on high heels because you feel like that is that yeah. which, which my, <laughs> my point was my point was a bit more uh, it wasn't actually thank you for clarifying because my point was um, that we will essentially emphasize less the importance of today's standards of gender and what gender means in terms of expression, such that seeing a man in heels doesn't even mean that he's a gay man. 
Right. It doesn't mean that he's a trans man. It actually just means that you're looking at a man in heels. We, we are going to, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to deconstruct the entire sort of mm-hmm. societal understanding of humanity either. Like I get that you're going to look at a person and make your assumptions about them and schematize them and try and put them into categories in your brain. All I'm getting, what I was trying to communicate was, I think we will put less of an emphasis on please stay within your gender norms because that's the only thing that's comfortable for me to see. So if a man puts on a blouse, it just is not going to, or a woman puts on, you know, a suit and decides to show up in that way, that it's, it's, it's a non sequitur is what I'm getting at. And I hope that it's a non sequitur. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the capacity or knowledge or passions of an individual to express their identity or their gender in different ways than what we see as normative today as a society. Um, that that's that's more of what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. It makes good sense, and I think if if I look around r- right now, I think there is a cautiousness, um, you know, on the PC side as as we were talking about it, and sometimes the cautiousness doesn't serve us right. So I think we were we were suggesting to people here, you know, yeah, be cautious, but be brave, build rapport, and ask some questions. And and I think the other question or or the other point that you're making, and I think it's 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 a really good point uh, to 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 take with us is, you know, don't don't assume, like don't think that, you know, these traditional norms, and don't shame anybody. Like I I, I think that's that's where the most important thing is. Like, right. why should you feel ashamed to come out or to put something on that you like or wear a blouse? Sure. You you are there's a good reason why you're afraid because you get shamed from other people they shame you so so that's what we need to stop doing as a society to in, inflict shame on our kids on our you know friends on our neighbors and we would be such so much better place. Yeah, you know <laughs> I, I have to say that on the, on the subject because it now just it aligns with all the different topics that came up today when we think about equality on the whole. So that is to say a woman's right to equal pay, an LGBTQ person's right to marry, a black person's right to not be murdered by the police. It's interesting that, you know, when when people think about their roles, and, and I in some ways with love and empathy and compassion, I am speaking to cisgender white men as the most privileged race on the planet. It is factual and it is real. And we can talk about that in another session. But for a cisgender white man to try and understand with empathy the experiences of these minorities that I just named and how they have to fight for their equality, it is further than just acknowledging we're all equal. Let's just be equal. The concept is actually our systems, our structures, our societies have been built in ways to oppress the three people I named. And then eventually we have been working to chip away at the structures of oppression to be seen as equal. And that requires so much more work on the backs of you know, the people in power or with the most privilege to actually focus on, invest money in, and to be directly responsible for shifting the systems and structures to make a woman equal, to make a queer person equal, to make a black person equal. So it's far beyond just the personal sense of, well, I believe in equality, so I'm an equal, uh, uh, even for myself as a 
white passing Middle Eastern man, I recognize that privilege and it colors my fight for racial justice. So I hope it's, I hope people recognize that we're talking about systemic and structural change with all conversations of social progression, feminism, racial justice, LGBTQ equality, and that requires the people with the greatest power to really lean into their responsibility to change systems. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an important thing to state here. And I also want to say something else. I certainly recognize, you know, the white privilege um, side of things. And, and it is something that I never thought of until I was probably 46, I have to, I have to admit, because I just, I just didn't grow up like that. And uh, we didn't talk about it. Like, at the same time, I also believe that, you know, shaming, so we must... Right. Not shame anyone else, and we shouldn't feel ashamed. So, I, I believe that for white men, um, you know, th so th th there is now a tendency to kind of shame, like, "Oh, you're you're a white man, shut up!" Like, mm. been enough of you. And 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 I think we have to be kind of work hand in hand. So, you know, right. I need to be able to feel empathy and put myself in the shoes of the three people you mentioned and be actively participating in creating a world where they don't have to feel the way they feel now. Right. And I think the other side needs to see, like needs to not see white man as a class, as a box as well, because there's no such thing like hu it's humans. And so feeling guilty and, and shameful is not going to help. Empathy and intention is going to help, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I not only agree, but it's been one of my greatest lessons and muscles that I've strengthened as an LGBTQ activist is to actually hear homophobia or hear ignorance directly spewed at me and to respond to it calmly, with dignity and with empathy. That is to say, if someone is cursing at me for you know, sabotaging Judaism by suggesting LGBTQ equality should be accepted, my response can be, Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm curious why you feel that way. Rather than, how dare you? How could you? There's no way. And that's lent me to immense growth with people that are initially antagonists. And I'm not going to say they move from antagonists to allies, but they at minimum move from antagonists to tolerant, right? On that spectrum of rather than be hostile to you, I'll at minimum recognize your humanity. And I agree with you that we don't want to go to war when we're fighting for justice, at minimum with people that are well-intentioned and empath empathic themselves. I'm not going to say to a black person, go to the KKK rally and try and talk to that person who would rather have you <laughs> dead than alive. Of course not. Yeah. Like that. So there's, there's limits to empathy as well. But what you mentioned, which is with well-intentioned and people, people who are desiring to make a difference and lean in to change-making that we also want to be empathic to help them understand our movement for equality and how to be the best allies to us. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just like angry people, angry, constricted, tense people yeah. in warrior mode, you know, with tools out, they, right. they, don't, they don't tend to change. So right. we kind of need to meet in a space somewhere, you know, where we both feel good about ourselves and we both, you know, approach with curiosity and then, I think everything is possible. All right. Aria, thank you so much for being here and, and, and sharing your wisdom and thoughts. I think it was, it was very important and, 
and useful. And, um, you know, I look forward to maybe continuing this on other forums somewhere. Someday. It's been a genuine pleasure, Mickey. And thank you for creating a space to have these important conversations about modern masculinity and, and uh, the topics that matter to many of us most. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Please check our webpage at www.mentorship.com www.mandorshift.com Join our newsletter and learn about the Mentorship Coaching and other services and resources we offer. Keep listening to our podcast for more inspiration and motivation.